and amen. Thank you, brother. What a wonderful morning of worship already. Um, and uh, as Nathan said, and I, I know that he means this, he, he doesn't sing that a cappella to, to draw attention to himself, and I'm grateful for that. He, he has struggled all week on, uh, on that song, and, but uh, I appreciate that he desires to bring us to the throne of God. Um, and not only that, but to sing songs that remind us of the words that we're going to hear from the Word of God here in just a moment. If you would, turn in your Bibles first to Psalm 50, Psalm 50, and then put your finger there, and you're going to go to Psalm, or, sorry, Matthew 25, so Psalm 50, Matthew 25, and then Romans 12. We're going to be looking at all three passages this morning as we close our summer sermon series on worship, um, and I hope that it has been a good one uh, for you. I hope that there's been times that you've been encouraged. I hope there's times that you've been convicted about having a life and living a life of worship and how we do that. Um, as you turn there, just as a word of where we are going next, um, starting next week, we will, be start, we will be starting a sermon series on Jonah, Micah, Nahum and Habakkuk. Um, I know those are all very common, and you've heard sermons out of those time and time again. No, okay. Um, but I'm excited about us going through these uh, four minor prophets. I would encourage you, because they are not um, maybe the most well-known books, I would encourage you. Um, on the back in the lobby, there are reading guides, um, for the fall, for you to follow along with us as we work our way through these four minor prophets, um, I would encourage you to pick one up. They are set where you have a reading every day from Monday through Friday. The majority of those readings will take you about five minutes. There's a few that'll take you longer. There are a few that may not take you that long to read. Um, but uh, I would encourage you to grab one of those. They, I promise you that if you will do those reading guides and, and work along with us, that they will deepen your experience in Sunday school as well as in um, the sermons that we cover. Um, and so just encourage you to grab one of those on your way out um, of service this morning. We do, though, come to the end of our look at worship, this thing that we as created, as created beings have been designed for and this thing as believers in Jesus Christ that we have been called to. And so if you are able, would you please stand with me as we read these three passages together to honor the reading of God's Word? If in the middle of this you need to grab a seat, that is perfectly understandable. Um, but let's begin together. Psalm 50, reading Verse 14, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. And then switching over to Matthew 25, we're going to be looking at verse, starting in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. 
For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And then finishing in Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, my brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members, of one, members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in an exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who, act, who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let us pray. Father, we come before you and we thank you for your word. We thank you for this book that you have given us that we may hear from you, that we may know you, that we may know your heart, that we may know how to serve you best, how to worship you, how to love one another and serve one another. Father, we thank you for this church family that you've given us, each individual with a unique gift and talent and personality, and passion, and desire, so that it may fit together like the most wonderful puzzle ever seen, that the beauty of Christ may be put on display. Father, I pray that we would find our fit in that. Lord, that we would have a desire to serve, just as we have a desire to breathe. Father, we pray these things. In the beautiful name of Jesus Christ, amen. Thank you. you may be seated. For the last time, uh, we will start our sermon this morning uh, on just a review of where we've been during, uh, since the very end of May as we have looked at worship. This thing, again, as I said earlier, that we have been made for and called to, and so we should better understand what we mean when we say the word worship when we say that we are to live lives of worship towards God. We gave a definition, first and foremost, a working definition of worship, saying that worship is placing supreme value of, on God. That when we live our lives, that we should have a desire to make much of Him, to communicate to Him how much He means to us, just as we would a significant other, a spouse, or a friend, 
a parent or grandparent, a child, that, uh, anyone that we have that kind of relationship with, that we, we do what we can to let them know that they are valuable to us. So, and so, in, in turn, we should desire to do the same with God. And not only to communicate that to Him, but to communicate it to those that are around us. Those that look at our lives should know where our value, what our treasure truly is. That they would look at our lives and say, they value Jesus Christ. And we've talked about these last eight weeks or so in particular about how we do that. What are the ways that we can live our lives in such a way that communicate to God that we value him. And we talked about the word. That we look at this and we value it. We consider it a precious thing that we hold close to our hearts because they are his words. We've talked about prayer and singing. We've talked about creativity. That each one of us have been given talents and gifts and desires and passions. And there's almost an unlimited way that we can worship. Whether it be through cooking or building. Whether it be through teaching. Whether it be through the growing of, of flowers or whatever the case may be for you, that there is an unlimited way that we can worship and proclaim his worth. We've talked about silence, that to enjoy his presence by just listening is important. We've talked about testimony. We've, last week we talked about generosity. And this week we look at service, that we are called to worship God through the act of service. Last week we said that worship through generosity is placing our resources in God's hands. If that is true, then the act of service as worship we could define as placing ourselves in God's hands. That it's one thing for us to be generous, and that is a good and right thing to do, to be generous with the resources that he has given us, that we may honor him, that we may show him that you are more valuable than all of this stuff we have. It is, it is a different thing when we come before him and we say, you are all valuable. You are my everything. Here am I. Here am I. Send me. Where do you want me to go? What would you have me to do? And my hope is, is that as we go through these three passages together, that we would see this thread of service as our right and honorable act of worship to a God who has served us first. And so if you would, turn back to Psalm 50. We're going to be looking at this. This is where we're going to start this morning Psalm 50 is interesting. Um, first, it's not a psalm of David. It's a psalm of Asaph. He writes several of the psalms throughout as you, as you kind of look. But it is a psalm that is different in another way. It is a psalm that is different in the sense that it is a psalm that's pretty pointed. It, it's got a pretty strong message with it. A lot of times the psalms are, are declarations of gratitude and thanks or they are declarations of, of lament and grief, and, and you see all of these human emotions. But in Psalm 50, we have a very pointed message to the, to the nation of Israel. And it's this, you don't really love me. You don't really care for me. Throughout Psalm 50, God talks to the people of Israel, and he says, you are all about religious things. 
You're all about religious things. You're all about burnt offerings and coming to the temple and sacrificing goats and sheep and bulls and checking that box off of your list of things to do. But then you turn around and you love what is evil. You turn around the rest of your life and you do whatever it is that you want to do. To put it in our context today, it would be like the individual that, that comes on Sunday mornings on a, on a regular basis, and they, but they do it not out of a desire, <coughs> excuse me, to worship with other believers. They don't do it out of, a, out of a love for Christ. They do it simply because it is a religious thing to do, and it's, a, it's another thing for them to accomplish in their week. There is no desire there. And they walk out of the building having done their religious duty for the week and they go out and they live life however they want to live it. There is very little thought given the rest of the week to God, to the people of God, or how God desires to be in their lives. And what we see in 50 is God says, I don't want that. I don't want that. That's not what I desire from you. I desire something far different, in fact. And so we see in verse, I'm going to back up to verse 12. We see what he is desiring. It says in verse 12, if I were hungry, <clears throat> excuse me, if I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? In other words, do I need you to give me food? The answer, of course, is no. And then verse 14, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And perform your vows to the Most High. And call upon me in the day of trouble. And I will deliver you. And you shall glorify me. Now we don't live in the Old Testament times. We don't have a temple that we attend. We don't offer blood sacrifices anymore. And so there's a little bit of the context here that is lost upon us. What I want us to focus on in verse 14 is he calls for a sacrifice of thanksgiving and a performance of our vows. The sacrifice of thanksgiving and the performance of vows refers to what the law calls a peace offering. You see, there were two primary types of offerings in the Old Testament. So think Moses, think uh, David, think the temple what would happen is one of those was a guilt offering or a sin offering. And so you would sin, you would do something that broke the law of God, and you would know that, that it was, there was a consequence for that. Namely, the consequence for sin is death. And so desiring not to have that happen, you would bring forth a goat or a lamb or a bull or a dove, depending on what had happened and your economic status. You would bring that forth and you would give it over to the priest. He would place your sin symbolically on that animal and then they would slaughter that animal and put it on the altar and it would be devoured by the flame. A piece of that would go to the priest, but the vast majority of it would be devoured by the flame. It was there to symbolize a substitute for your mistake, to make atonement, to make, a, to make a payment for what you had done. And that's what Israel had made a focus on. They had made the focus about just making sure that they didn't suffer any consequences they didn't want to have any consequence for their sins. So they had made sure that they practiced the, 
the religious symbolic nature of coming and bringing an offering and making sure that it got burned up by the fire. But they didn't do it because they loved him. They didn't do it because they wanted to have a relationship with him again. They did this because they just didn't want the alternative. And the same could be said of us. There are those that come before the Lord, they come before God, and they may pray a prayer, they may go to church, they may have done some things in their life that would speak of religion out of a desire not to know God, but simply to avoid the alternative. But when they live the rest of their lives, there's no mark of being born again. There's no mark of of them being a changed person and following him. There's simply the mark of religion. The peace offering was different. The peace offering you brought with your whole family. And you would come and you would have an animal, but you would also have baked goods. Sometimes that was a loaf of bread, sometimes that was a a cake, but not as we think of cakes, okay? Um, but a wheat cake or a, grain, a cake made out of grain. And they would bring these, these baked goods and this animal, and they would still sacrifice the animal. They would still put the animal on the, the altar, but then they would pull a good chunk of it back off the altar, and they would have a meal with their family, the baked goods, the, the offering, the priest would come and sit with them. And there in the temple grounds, they would have a meal together. And it was symbolic of a desire not just to avoid a consequence. It was symbolic of the strengthening of the relationship between God and his people you think about now, what, what do we do when we care about something? What do we do to celebrate a relationship or an achievement in someone's life? We go eat, right? The people that you care about, and as Baptists, we're really good at this. But when we like people, when we have relationships with people, when we would like that relationship to be deeper, you go on a date, what do you do? You eat. God says, make this type of offering, because my desire is not simply that you be religious. My desire is to have a relationship with you. It's to eat with you. It's to have not only you, but your whole family. And it wasn't just that. It was, there was a, a suggestion, there was an encouragement that you would invite those that were poor, that maybe couldn't offer an offering of thanksgiving, that you would bring them along as well, and they would be your guests. This was all about relationship, and it was a response to the goodness of God, that God had saved them time and time again, that he had shown grace and mercy and unconditional love, that he had called them out of slavery in Egypt and had given them a, a new home and a new nation for themselves and that he had protected them. All of these things and, and above and beyond what we have already named, the sacrifice, this sacrifice of thanksgiving was a response to his goodness it was a natural response to his goodness. As we have talked about time and time again, as we have looked at worship, that worship is an overflowing of a heart that God has poured into. And it's a natural thing to praise what we have experienced to be good. We see this natural response come to 
light to fruition in Matthew 25, if you would turn over there with me. A natural response of God's people to worship through service. Matthew 25, starting with verse 31, is probably a pretty recognizable passage for many of you. It's a passage, uh, the sheep and the goats, the, the coming of Jesus Christ as king um, in his return. He sits on the throne and he judges the earth and he divides into two groups, the sheep, who are those that have, have a relationship with Jesus Christ, who have not only believed in him but have followed him, and then those that are the goats that have never had a relationship with him. And we have, uh, many of us have heard sermons or Bible studies or, or other things about this passage. But typically, uh, as in my experience at least, when we read this passage, we tend to focus on the goats. Um, and we tend to focus on what happens to them. And while there's an important message there, this morning I want to primarily focus on the sheep. Starting in verse 31, looking at this passage again, it says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit in, on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. He says, you have served well. Notice that what he says here at the end, in verse 40, he says, and the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. You see, when we experience the glory of God, when we experience the goodness of God, it is natural for God's people to serve others and in doing so to serve him. Let me say that again. When we experience God and we are adopted into his family, it is natural for God's people to serve others and in doing so to serve him. Notice what he says here. He calls to them and he says, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, and inherit the kingdom. Who inherits the kingdom? Those that inherit the kingdom are the sons and daughters of the king, yes? So these individuals who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, they have been adopted into the family. And now, here at the end of time, before the judgment seat of God, Jesus Christ himself says, come into the inheritance. Come get it. It has been yours since the beginning of the world. Since before the beginning of the world. Come enjoy what is rightfully yours and then he identifies those who will receive this. It's those who have done acts of service. It's those who have done acts of service. And you can kind of divide these acts of service into two. One are acts of hospitality. You gave me food, you gave me drink, you gave me shelter. So there's acts of hospitality, acts of service of hospitality. And then there are acts of mercy to go to the sick, to go to those that are in prison, to go to those that are in need that can't help themselves both are acts that God does himself. This is a picture of who he is as well. Jesus Christ tells us, I came not to be served, but to serve. And we see God in throughout the history of man 
do acts of hospitality. He gives food and drink and shelter. He does acts of mercy. He helps those who cannot help themselves. But this act of service, notice, it is not for gain. They, they didn't do these things that they may gain his favor. In fact, they don't even know that they've done them for him. Look at their response in verse 37. It says, Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? The king says again, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. You see, God's people, those that truly have a relationship with him and have been adopted into the family, they don't do things that they may gain favor because there is no favor to be gained. They know that God's grace is his grace because it can't be earned that he has forgiven you, that he has loved you, that he has shown you mercy, that he has made you a part of his family because that was his desire for you. And there is no way for you to, to earn that, nor is there a way for you to repay it. You don't have to earn your keep in God's house, no matter what your parents may have told you. You don't have to. Some of you had that said to you as a child, and some of you didn't, obviously. You do not have to earn your keep in the house of God. You know, it's, it's free. It's a gift. So the acts of service that these folks are doing, they do simply because that's who they are. They simply desire to serve. That is the heart of a believer. That is the heart of one who has been made into a new creation and adopted into the family, that they have a desire to serve others because that's what they see Jesus doing. So God's people serve others, and in so doing serve God, they serve not for gain, and their service is natural like breathing. It's not that they have been overly commanded to go do these things, though that certainly is part of it. It's not that they sought out their own good. It's not that they sought out to, to gain favor with God or, or even with others. They do so because it is the natural thing for them to do. They don't even think about it. When did we do that for you? Jesus, when did we do that for you? When did, when did we accomplish these things that you speak of? That's what happens when you have a heart that just naturally does things. It's like, I don't think about how many times I took a breath in a minute. I don't sit there and, and think, man, I, I did 30 breaths that, that minute. Good for me. <laughs> I did 15. I, I, I lowered my intake, air intake that minute. I, I'm down to 15. Good for me. That's not what I do, right? When someone, if someone were to tell me, hey, did you know you took 15 breaths that last minute? I would go, really? Why are you counting? Okay, that's odd. In the same way, Jesus comes to these people and goes, good job, you served well. And their response is, really? Okay. <laughs> because it's just who they are. It's a natural response. And this is what we have been talking about for the last, this whole last summer is that worship is just the natural response of those who have experienced him. Go to Romans with me. Come to Romans with me to chapter 12. Paul brings this full circle for us. 
as we've seen that that God desires to have a relationship with us, that he desires for us to, to come to him and then to serve him, that we see that the natural response of the individual who believes in him is to serve. And then Paul wraps this up in a bow by saying that service and the offering of ourselves is truly our spiritual worship. Starting in verse 1, it says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Going on, I'm going to skip down to verse 3. For by grace, by the grace given to me, I say that everyone among you should not think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned for as in one body we have many members and the function and the members do not all have the same function so we though many are one body in Christ and individual members one of another having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us let us use them and then he lists out some of those gifts and how we can use them in the body of Christ you see the reality is is that now because of what Jesus Christ has done because he came, God came into the flesh and lived a perfect life and voluntarily laid down his life for us to pay for our consequences, to pay for our mistakes. Now, the need for the shedding of blood is complete. No longer do we have to come before God and bring an animal sacrifice that our mistakes may be covered now? He has done that once and for all. And for those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, there is no need for another priest. There is no need for another altar. There is no need for a temple because we walk straight to him. In the blood of Jesus Christ, we enter boldly into his presence. However, there is still need for our part to respond. Though we do not respond by the offering of a sheep or a goat or a bull, we still have a need in our hearts to respond to the goodness and to the grace of God. And so how do we do that, Paul says? We do it in our own lives. We do it in our own lives. We present our bodies as the living sacrifice. Now our sacrifice of thanksgiving is us. We stand before a holy God, no longer bringing a gift of an animal. Now we stand before a holy God and we say, here am I. Not out of obligation, not out of coercion, but out of a knowledge of who he is and what he has done for us. This is the proper response of the believer to serve, to serve well, to serve happily, to serve cheerfully, to serve as one who has already been served in a greater way than we could ever fully grasp, to serve as though it is breath in our lungs, to serve naturally to serve without desire for gain. And so we come, we come to these three questions. 
Three questions to wrap up our entire time of talking about worship this entire summer. These three questions. One, do you know God? Do you know him? You will never rightly worship him. You will never rightly understand his value and his worth. You will never serve him well until you know him. And maybe, maybe you've been religious your whole life. You have come to church dutifully with, out, of, out of a sense of commitment maybe or a sense of obligation. You have sat through sermon after sermon after sermon. Maybe you even give of your, of your resources, your tithe. But if you were to look in the mirror and be honest, you would say, I don't have a relationship with you. I merely come, do my, my hour a week, and I leave. And I don't think about him the rest of the week. I don't hear from him the rest of the week. I don't know him. He's not mine. I'm not his. This morning, he desires to give you the most incredible gift you could ever have to know unconditional love, to know mercy and grace, to know contentment and satisfaction, to know peace and joy that the world can never take away. All you have to do is talk to him this morning, to pray to him and say, Father, forgive me. I know that I've tried to do this my own way. I know that I've, I've tried to be my own boss, to be my own king, and I have messed this up. Please forgive me. I don't want to go that way anymore. I want to follow you. Where do you want to go? It doesn't have to be those exact words, but that's the heart of one that desires to follow him. But you must know him to receive these blessings, to know what we, we talk about, what we sing about. You have to know him. Second, are you responding to him? Brother or sister in Christ, you've, already given your life over to him. You've already experienced his grace. You know the hope of heaven. You know the contentment of the spirit. You have received him and you have been blessed by him. Are you responding to him? Is your life a life of worship in response to one who has been so good to you? We all at times need a breather, right? Like, I don't care what kind of service you do. I don't care what kind of job you have. There are all times that we need a breather, right? But the problem is, is that sometimes in the Christian life, a breather becomes a vacation, and a vacation becomes a long-term stay. Maybe you're in that long-term stay period. And it's been a while since you have served it's been a while since you've lived a life of, of worship in any way that you've withdrawn some things. And this morning, God touching your heart and he's reminding you of how good he's been to you. And he's inviting you to come and join him again. Do you respond to him out of what he has done for you? And then lastly, do others recognize that? You see, our worship, yes, is a, it's a private decision. It's a personal decision. But it should be evident in our lives. People should look at your life and say, there's something different there. 
They value, they have different values. They have different expectations of life. They have different priorities in life. There is something different about them because God uses that. He uses our worship. He uses our service not to glorify us, but rather that others may know him as we do, that others may know how good he is, that others may know how he is loved. I loved what Bryce and Pacey shared earlier this morning of, and the prayer that they had of, of we volunteer that others may know him. So true. Pray that you would ask these questions this morning. That you would allow him to, to view into your life and to, to just poke maybe a little bit and say, hey, this right here, this needs to change. Or to poke a little bit and say, hey, this right here, good job. Christ is not up there trying to get you at every turn. He desires for you to grow and mature into his child and into a good spiritual adult. And so there's times, yeah, he's going to say, hey, this needs to change. But there are other times, just as we do, as good parents do, that we grab our kid and we throw them up in the air and we say, good job. Maybe he needs to do that this morning. You just need to be encouraged a little bit. I'm going to have the praise team to come back up and we're just going to have a time of response. Maybe this morning your right and good response is to pray, Father, I want a relationship with you. Forgive me. I want to follow you. Maybe your good and right response this morning is to, to be encouraged and to sing with us of what he has done for you. Maybe your right and good response is to ask him, where do you want me to serve? What would you have me to do? Let me pray. Father, we come before you and we thank you for your love and your mercy, for your grace, for your blessings, all of which are undeserved, but that you have poured out above and beyond in our lives in ways that we cannot even fully begin to grasp. Father, I pray that we would know you that we would be that our relationship with you would deepen and that as that happens lord that we would respond to you as a church that we would desire to worship well to serve well not to sit back but to engage father i pray lord that you would give us the courage this morning to respond to you how you are leading father i thank you as well this morning for the many people that I see as I, as I look around this wonderful church family who are already engaged, who are already serving. And Lord, I thank you for them. I thank you for how you're using them. I pray that you would encourage them this morning. That they would hear now, well done, my good and faithful servant. Keep going. We pray this in the beautiful name. Of Jesus Christ. Amen.